podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am going to continue with my discussion of Alexandra Kolontai's short 1926 book called The Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman. I had an opportunity to discuss the text a little bit with my daughter in the last episode, and I decided in thinking about how to contextualize this piece of writing that it might be really useful for this episode to actually look at a couple of the English language sources that we have about Kolontai's life and her work. Particularly, there are two that were contemporary with her. So I'm going to start by reading a couple of quotes from the American journalist Louise Bryant. So Louise Bryant was with John Reed, another American journalist, and they were in Russia after the February 1917 revolution, and they stayed in Russia through the Bolshevik Revolution in October, and they wrote extensively about their time. John Reed wrote a very famous book called Ten Days That Shook the World, and Louise Bryant had a couple of books, one, Six Months in Red Russia, and the second, which was a series of profiles of prominent Bolshevik leaders called Mirrors of Moscow. And Kolontai is mentioned in both of these books. In her 1918 book, Six Red Months in Russia, Louise Bryant describes Kolontai like this. She is a slim little person whose age is hard to determine. Sometimes she looks 20 and again much older. She works untiringly and through persistence born of flaming intensity, she accomplishes a tremendous amount. She is one of the best women orators I ever heard. She is always asked to interpret the speeches of the foreign delegates that come to Petrograd. Kolontai dresses very well, which is exceedingly unusual in Russia among women interested in revolutionary ideas. In 1923, in her book Mirrors of Moscow, Louise Bryant gives a much more detailed account of Kolontai with many interesting observations about her personality and her way of working. She writes in 1923, Madame Kolontai is about 50 years of age and appears much younger. She has dark brown hair and blue eyes and could easily be taken for an American. She is one of the few women communists who cares about her appearance. By that, I do not mean that she enjoys any luxury. She lives in one room in a Soviet hotel, but she is pretty and she knows how to wear clothes. Once I complimented her on a little smart fur toque she was wearing. She laughed and said, yes, one must learn tricks in Russia. So I have made my hat out of the tail of my coat, which is already five years old. In a different part of the biographical sketch, Bryant again comes back to Kolontai's charm and beauty, writing, Madame Kolontai possesses much charm. She is slim and pretty and vivacious. With a little too much the manner of a public speaker, she talks so easily on any subject, even to reporters, that it almost gives an impression of insincerity. Her open mind is in reality an evidence of the kind of sincerity which has no fear of publicity. She likes Americans and knows more about this country than most Russians, but she has not always known. Some years ago, when lecturing there, she happened to be in Patterson during the great strike there. 
When she saw the workers marching through the streets, she rushed into a room full of people and exclaimed, a revolution has begun. But last year, in speaking of America, she said it was the country least agitated by revolutionary thought. So there are some other wonderful biographical details provided here by Louise Bryant in 1918 and 1923. But I think what's really interesting here is uh, two places where Bryant also realizes that Kollontai can be critical of her colleagues. There's a passage where she talks about Kollontai standing up to Lenin. And there's also a wonderful passage where she talks about Kollontai complaining that the revolutionary government has too many men in it. She writes, Madame Kollontai finds even a revolutionary government can be run too largely by men. If it does nothing worse, it has a very bad habit of overlooking women. But it cannot overlook them for long while Madame Kollontai is about, for she never fails to appear at the important congresses to remind the delegates of their sins to goad them into discussions of women and women's problems. So here we have Bryant basically telling us that Kolontai was truly up in the face of the Bolsheviks whenever they tried to ignore women's problems. And she also, Bryant, also has this interesting reflection at the end of her essay about her attacks on the family life. And the quote is, periodically, Kolontai attacks family life and claims that it is the only institution that communists are afraid to reform. Now, it's important to remember that this is written in 1923, so Kolontai has actually gotten into a fair amount of trouble because of her essays, like Make Way for Winged Arrows. And then Bryant continues by saying, one needs only to look about at the leaders of the movement to wonder why they should be concerned with reforming it. Lenin leads a distinctly normal family life, as do Trotsky and Kalinin. The wives of these commissars work and are interesting, well-known personalities, and Kolontai herself is married. Her inconsistencies are her most feminine trait, as well as one of her most alluring characteristics. Here, Bryant, I think, is pointing out that the leaders of the Bolsheviks, and at this point, Kolontai herself, who is still married to Devanko, is kind of contradicting the idea that the Bolsheviks are going to reform the family. So Bryant gives us some really interesting first-person information about Kolontai in the late teens and early 20s, right before and after the Bolshevik Revolution. Another text which I find really fascinating was written by the Spaniard Isabel de Palencia. It was published in 1947 under the name Alexandra Kolontai, Ambassadress from Russia. And Palencia was a friend of Kolontai's in Sweden, and she relied heavily on her own personal experiences of working with Kolontai and with interviews with many of Kolontai's friends and colleagues. Palencia also read a lot of Kolontai's letters and correspondence with Kolontai's friends in Sweden, Switzerland, and Mexico. And it is obviously a very sympathetic portrait of Kolontai. It's written by a dear friend. But what's useful about this is that it covers the period of the 30s, and it's written by somebody who actually knew Kolontai for quite a long period of time. It gives us a really wonderful first-hand account of what Kolontai might have been like as a person on a day-to-day -day basis. There are three really great anecdotes in this book that I want to talk about for this episode. And 
One of them is this story about the Chinese legation inviting all of the diplomats in Stockholm to come to their embassy for a fancy dinner. And the Chinese ambassador has these shark fins flown in from China to make some kind of shark fin soup. And all of the European diplomats are sitting around the table eating, you know, forced, being forced to eat this shark fin soup, which they find kind of disgusting. And the, but they eat it because they're good, they're good diplomats. And then seeing that everybody has cleared their plate, the Chinese ambassador offers everybody a second helping. And of course, nobody wants a second helping. And the butlers come and kind of take away their soup dishes. But the only person who does accept a second helping is Kolontai. And Kolontai does so and really endears herself incredibly to the Chinese ambassador. And reflecting on this, Palencia talks about Kolontai's natural talent for diplomacy. And she writes, I came to the conclusion that what made Alexandra so successful as a diplomat was not just her tact, not just knowing how and when to do the right thing, but it was knowing how to see herself in the place of any other man or woman with whom she might happen to be." Unquote. The second anecdote that I want to tell is related to a quote where Kolontai explained in relation to a very dear friend of hers, the Bulgarian Zoya Shadurskaya, that, quote, friendship is a more sociable emotion than sexual love. You can have many friends at a time because there are different strings which vibrate in contact with different people, unquote. And this is a really important quote because she did have this lifelong friendship with this Bulgarian girl that she met when she was six in Sofia. So Alexandra Kolontai was in Bulgaria in 1878 with her father, General Demontovich, to help the Bulgarians write a liberal constitution and to write a constitution after their independence from the Ottoman Empire. And at that time, six-year-old Alexandra Kolontai made the acquaintance of this woman, Zoya Shadurskaya, and they remained friends all the way until 1952 when Kolontai died. Theirs was a very, very close friendship. One of her other biographers basically quoted Kolontai saying that nobody in her life was more dear to her than Zoya except for her son. And Zoya and Kolontai lived together for many, many years, and Zoya followed Kolontai on her many diplomatic missions. There was definitely a very strong bond between these two women. And Palencia explains how Kolontai agreed to marry Dubanko. She wasn't keen on marrying Dubanko at all, but he insisted that they get married under the new civil ceremony. And Kolontai, after he had been away at the front for a while and she worried for him, she thought that maybe it would be more respectable for them to be married. Now, remember, Dubanko was considerably younger than Kolontai was, but Zoya, very interestingly, was opposed to the match. Zoya did not think that Kolontai should get married. And there's this wonderful quote from Zoya about Kolontai's potential marriage. She says, will you really put down our flag of freedom for his sake? You, who all your life have been fighting against the slavery that married life brings and that always comes into collision with our work and achievements? Zoya is a really interesting character and, and maybe in the future I would love to do another episode just focusing on the story of Zoya and Kolontai. I think there's a lot of interpretive room in that relationship that could be discussed and that might be really fun. 
And the final episode that is so beautiful from this book, and it's just this amazing discussion of the purges that were happening in 1937 and 1938. And Palencia was with Kolontai when there were all these rumors flying around about Stalin killing all of these old Bolsheviks. And of course, Kolontai herself feared for her life. She knew that other diplomats were being recalled and being put on trial and killed. And Kolontai, very possibly, she was certainly among those that Stalin could have targeted. And so Palencia recounts this amazing scene where she is very anxious for Kolontai and she's worried about her friend. They're very close at this point. And finally, Kolontai calls her and says, let's take a drive out to the forest because she probably couldn't speak about anything that was going on. I'm sure the Soviet embassy in Stockholm was just filled with spies. Her chauffeur was probably a spy. So they they go out to this wood and Palencia writes, We did not exchange a single word until we were facing the narrow walks under the giant firs hung with icicles, their whiteness melting into soft bluish tones under the facing light. Alexandra looked up at them, breathed deeply, and then turned to me and said, There was a time when all our men seemed as straight and firm and pure as these. And her eyes glistened with unshed tears. She opened her heart to me. Some of the men who had been tried had been her dear comrades. One, she mentioned, with quivering lips was her doctor. Life confronts us with many things that are difficult to understand, she said after a long pause. So there's this closeness that she develops with Palencia, and I think Palencia does a really beautiful job of writing about Kolontai as a woman, struggling with all of the difficulties of being the ambassador of the Soviet Union under Stalin in the 30s. Now, as I will talk about in subsequent episodes, Kolontai's performance in the 30s is not so great. She definitely fears for her life and she capitulates to Stalin. She ends up rewriting some of her previous articles in order to make Stalin appear like he was more important during the revolutionary period. And she basically keeps her head low and her mouth shut. And she does not, in her customary way, stand up to him as she did for to Lenin and Trotsky in an earlier period. She obviously gauged that Stalin was much more dangerous. And she kept her silence and served out uh, many years as the Soviet ambassador to Sweden. Kolontai lived to be almost 80. She died just short of her 80th birthday in 1952. And for anybody who lived during this period of time from 1872 to 1952, a very tumultuous period of history, she's obviously a complicated figure. No one is perfect and Kolontai herself was not perfect. I think she was really exceptional from these quotes that we have from both Louise Bryant, the American, and Isabel de Palencia, the Spaniard, we get a sense that she was a very private person. She obviously towed the party line well into you know the 30s through all of the atrocities that were happening in the Soviet Union, but she survived. And she plays a very important role in the brokering of peace between Finland and the Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War. And she goes on to have you know this very important career as a diplomat. 
I think what reading these primary sources about Kollontai helps us understand when we're reading the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman is that Kollontai really tries to play down the fact that she had these exceptional talents because she's a Bolshevik and she really wants to see to seem as if she's just another person like everybody else. And she starts the autobiography talking about how uncomfortable it is to be writing about herself in the context of the revolution. But Kolontai really was exceptional. She was an aristocrat. She spoke all of these languages very well. She was incredibly tactful. She had the blessing of being very beautiful and slender and well-dressed and fashionable and charming. She had these incredible talents. And I think it's really important to emphasize that she had these talents and these natural abilities because she put them all in the service of the revolution. And we shouldn't forget that. She could have had a very different life if she wanted to, but she chose to become a Bolshevik. She chose to stick with the Soviet Union through thick and thin, despite her personal animosity towards Stalin and the death of so many of her friends. She really was somebody who chose her politics and believed in the ideals of socialism in the long run. So anyway, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to say thank you for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode and keep up the good fight. Yes,